0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So last week, Pastor David walked us through Exodus chapter 2, which covers the first 80 years of Moses' life, and today we're in chapter 3, which covers Moses and the burning bush, except that chapter 3 is not really about Moses at all. Exodus chapter 3 is about God. And what we find here in this chapter is the most monumental scene of God in the whole Old Testament. And that's because here in Exodus chapter three, God is going to tell us how we should think about him. He's going to tell us his name. And what he says here gets echoed throughout the rest of the entire Bible. And I, I, I don't really know how to express to you how significant this passage is. But I thought maybe I should, I should just be honest with you about how unworthy I feel to preach this passage. Like this past week as I was I was meditating on this passage and I, as I was thinking about this moment with you, um, I, I feel so inadequate. Like I, I, I feel so inadequate to say to you what God is saying to us in Exodus chapter 3. Just... I can't believe I get to do this. Don't deserve it. Jar of clay, inadequate, all of that. And yet, it's my turn to preach, and we're here, and so we're going to try. I'm gonna to try to unfold Exodus chapter three, and there are at least three things that we learn here about God, three things that God shows us in this chapter. Number one, God reveals his holiness Number two, God remembers his promise. Number three, God enacts his identity. And I want to pray now before we get started. And and this morning, as I pray, I want to invite you to to pray with me. Because we believe that God still encounters people today. He does. And as we gather in worship, that's what we want. We, We want God to make himself known to us. And so, together, let's pray and let's ask him to do that. God Almighty, Yahweh, our Father in Christ, we long to know you, to hear from you. We, we long to be overcome by who you are, to be changed by who you are And so this morning, in this moment, we are asking for you to do that by your grace. Father, make yourself known to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first thing to see here is that God reveals his holiness. All right, we're going to pick up the story in chapter 3, verse 1, and it starts this way. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now, remember, Moses. had had fled from Egypt to Midian when he was 40 years old because he had killed an Egyptian man and Pharaoh, therefore, wanted to kill him. And so Moses fled Egypt. He's in Midian. And while Moses is in Midian, he marries a woman named Zipporah and they had a son who Moses calls Gershom which is a name that's connected to Moses' situation the 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 word Gershom comes from the Hebrew word for foreigner and so Moses names his son Gershom because he understands himself to be a foreigner in Midian and as a foreigner in Midian another 40 years passes by and there's an echo here To the story of Joseph back in Genesis. Because remember back in Genesis 37, when Joseph's brothers betrayed him and sold him, they sold him to Midianites. And it was through the Midianites that Joseph entered into Egypt. The same thing is going to happen again here. Because after 40 years of Moses in Midian, the Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses has finally died. And God hears the groaning of his people. He remembers his covenant. That's how chapter 2 ends. Chapter 2 ends with this classic cliffhanger. The Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses is dead. And God hears his people. And then chapter 3 opens. And Moses is keeping sheep. All right? Meanwhile this is the idea the the idea of the verb here in chapter 3 verse 1 is that Moses is still keeping sheep that's that's what it sounds like Moses is still keeping sheep in chapter 3 verse 1 and they're not even his own sheep they're the sheep of his father-in-law. And Moses, keeping these sheep, he has led the flock a long distance to the west. And he, he comes up to this mountain that's between Egypt and Midian. And the mountain was called Horeb. This is the first time this word is used in the Bible. And Horeb actually means waste, desolate. So at one level, this, this mountain is just meh. Just a mountain, waste. Except, look what it's called. It's called the mountain of God. And the reason it's called the mountain of God in verse 1 is because we're supposed to know that this mountain is important to the story of Israel. This mountain later is going to be called Sinai, and Mount Sinai plays a very important role in the Bible. It's where God gives us the law. But here in chapter 3, verse 1, this mountain's called Horeb, waste. And it's stumbled upon by a man who's been a foreigner for 40 years and still works as a farmhand for his father-in-law. Now, remember, as Pastor Davis said last week, Moses is not ordinary. He's not. But in chapter 3, verse 1, we're supposed to see ordinary all over this thing until verse two. Okay, there's, a, there's what you can call, like there's this diamond ring dynamic that's happening here. Okay, this happens in the Bible sometimes. We see this and it always reminds me of when I bought Melissa's engagement ring years ago. And uh, I remember this because the actual buying of the ring Was very special to me. It was a big deal. And that's because I bought Melissa's engagement ring from the same guy who sold my dad, my mom's engagement ring, 25 years before. Same guy, same exact same store in Raleigh, and this guy knew my dad. Which means you could say, I have a friend in the diamond business. Every time I hear those commercials, I think, I do. I got a friend. I forgot his name, but he's a great guy, great guy. And I remember, though, when he showed me this diamond, he did what you always do when you show a diamond ring. He, He took this black velvet cloth and he laid it flat and he placed the diamond on top of it and you could see the diamond for what it was. Now, it was very teeny, (laughs) but it dazzled. It dazzled. And verse 1 here is the black cloth. Verse 2 is the diamond. Really, you could say that the whole direction of Moses' life for the last 40 years... Is a black cloth. He is a shepherd leading somebody else's flock in a wasteland. In one sense, he will always be that. But the main point to see here, which we're going to see again, is that Moses has not earned Exodus chapter 3. Mm-mm what we're going to see God do is not owed to Moses. And in fact, it's Moses' low station that has prepared him the best. I had a friend tell me a couple weeks ago, the friend said that faith, faith is not something we acquire, but it's something we're reduced to. And Moses has been reduced. God will often bring us low before he gets us started. Black cloth. Verse 2 And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the central question here is, who is the angel of the Lord? Who is the angel of the Lord? Let's notice a few things about him. Number one, he appeared to Moses in a flame of fire verse 2. He is called the Lord, verse 4. He has a holy presence. He calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses was afraid to look at him, referring to him as God. All right, so there's no way that this is a created angel like we see In other places. In Revelation 19, there's this scene where the Apostle John encounters an angel and he falls down to worship the angel. And the angel says right away, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't do that. I'm just an angel. Worship God. That is what angels say when they accidentally get worshipped. Nothing like that is said here in Exodus 3. And that's because the angel of the Lord is not an angel like that. The angel of the Lord is actually the Lord himself. And the wording is constructed here in a way to say that. There's just two words here side by side, okay? Angel, Lord. It's like how we might say city Minneapolis. Pastor David lives in the city Minneapolis. The second word is not referring to something different, but it identifies the first. The angel Lord is the Lord, but in some sense, he is different from the Lord because he is not invisible and he is not dwelling in unapproachable light, but he is on the ground where Moses is in the form of a fire Moses can see and speaking in words that Moses can hear. So this combines two things that typically we cannot hold together. God's holiness and God's relatability. God's far outness and God's nearness. His transcendence and his imminence; His blinding otherness and his visible revelation. Or as Isaiah puts it, God is high and lifted up inhabiting eternity and he also dwells with the lowly we see this in the burning bush the God high and lifted up the God dwelling in eternity is with the lowly the burning bush shows us holiness is the fire Nearness is the voice that calls out of the fire. Holiness is the warning, don't come too close, take off your sandals. Nearness is the relationship, I'm the God of your fathers. Holiness is Moses being afraid of this sight and therefore he hides his face. Nearness is that Moses has seen anything at all and his face has not melted off. The angel of the Lord is fully God and yet distinct from God. And there is only one other person in the Bible who is both identical with and yet distinct from God. There is only one other person in the Bible who possesses the fullness of deity even as he accommodates himself to sinners. I believe the angel of the Lord in Exodus chapter 3 is the second person of the Holy Trinity appearing here not in flesh but in fire. Moses is talking as it were to Jesus. And Jesus is speaking, like he always does, on behalf of his Father. Such that to have seen Jesus is to have seen the Father. And to have heard Jesus is to have heard the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only God. But Jesus has made him known. The angel of the Lord is, like Jesus is, the revelation of God's holiness. That's what's happening here. God reveals his holiness. Number two, God remembers his promise. Notice verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Now, we've already seen this at the end of chapter 2. God is aware of Israel's affliction, and he has always been aware of Israel's affliction. But now, in verse 8, he says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of of the Egyptians so the God who sees and knows at the end of chapter 2 now makes it clear that he is also the God who acts he is the God who is coming down to act and the, the Hebrew word here for coming down is the same word used in Genesis 11 in the story of Babel okay remember back in that story You have mankind, in Genesis 11, mankind is conspiring together, trying to hinder the purpose of God. And God says, let us go down and confuse their language, right? Same word. It's also the same word that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 64, verse 1. Isaiah is fed up with Israel's captivity. And Isaiah prays, "Oh that you would rend the heavens and come down. It has the idea, the, the word has the idea of God rolling up his sleeves and going to work. I'm coming down there, God says. I, I'm coming down there to bring you up out of there and I'm bringing you into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the promised land. Now, at this time, This land was filled with Israel's enemies. But this is the land that God promised Abraham. And now the time has come for God to bring his people into that land. Just like he said he'd do in Genesis 15. And just like Joseph reminded us he would do in Genesis 50. It's happening. Okay, Now in verse 9, God just restates his plan over again. But this time, he includes Moses. Okay? Verse 9 here, we read for the third time that God has heard his people. He has seen what's going on, and he is going to do something about it. And Moses is probably hearing this and thinking, all right, finally, that's what I'm talking about. God is going to do something. And then God says, Moses, you're the one I'm sending. Hold up. That's what Moses says. This is a theme that we see throughout the whole Bible. God says, I'm going to act. And we say, yes. God says, I'm sending you. We say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is what Moses is happening here. He's, Moses is like, me? Uh, n- uh, n- uh, you know, he's, and then God jumps in and says in verse 12, but I will be with you. And God, God is saying something to Moses in these words that Moses will not understand until another 30 chapters. Okay? So mark your calendars for May 10th, 2020. Exodus 33. God is telling Moses that he will be with Moses. God is not asking Moses to go this alone. God is at work. God is always the one at work, but he's going to do the work through Moses. God's presence is meant to encourage Moses, and then he gives a second encouragement. It's a sign of the presence. Verse 12. Verse 12. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So what's the sign, right? What's he talking about? What's the sign? It's the fire. The same fire blazing in front of Moses at the burning bush is going to blaze again as God leads the people out of Egypt as a pillar of fire at night. It's the same fire that's going to throw the Egyptian forces into panic at the Red Sea. It's the same fire that, that will descend on the very mountain that Moses is at. The fire will descend there again as an appearance of the glory of the Lord. God is a consuming fire. The people of Israel are led from fire, by fire, to fire. That's the sign Of God's presence. Fire is the symbol of God's presence, which is why at Pentecost, in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, do you guys remember what's on their heads? Fire. Fire is the sign of God's holy presence, and the purpose is worship, not rescue. This is important to see. God is not just saving Israel from, but he is saving Israel to. That's his plan the whole time. I'm bringing you out of this land and into that land. God saves us not just out of slavery, but he saves us to himself in relationship with himself. That's the promise here. God remembers his promise. Okay? Three. Three. God enacts his identity. God enacts his identity. Okay. Raise your hand if you have ever thought about God before. Should be everybody. Everybody read. <laughs> Easy one. Everybody thinks about God. Or at least everybody has thought something about God, right? This is one of the most human things that we can do. We all have thoughts of God. But how do you know that what you think about God is right When I was was growing up in high school back in North Carolina, in the summers, I played American Legion baseball. And it was this neat thing where the team I played on was a combination of a couple other high schools, and we all played together in the summers. And I played on this team for about three years in a row. But the last year, my fourth year, I decided not to play. I was going to take a break. Um, I was going to relax and get ready for the fall semester and so I didn't play my fourth year well at the very end of that summer um, I ended up running into the dad of another player from a different town and my legion team had always played this other legion team and so me and this, and this dad we were talking about baseball and as we were talking he began to mention a few games from that summer and he, he, he commented on how I had played in those games. I was like, hmm, it was <laughs> interesting. You know, I, I'm, I, 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 I'm listening to him, and he's, he's referencing how I played. And, and see, the, I realized the problem is, the problem is that I, in ba- I was a catcher in baseball. So for most of the game, when I was on the field, I had a face mask on, and I had gear on from head to toe. And I realized as I was talking with this guy that, that for the entire season, he thought I was still the catcher on my old team, but of course I wasn't. I didn't, I didn't play a single game, and so you kinda, at some point you're in one of those. It's one of those conversations where like if you don't jump in early, you know it gets kind of it gets increasingly awkward. <laughs> so like, I, I blew through some exits, you know, and I'm like, okay, I got Where where do I where do I get off here? And eventually I, I got to clarify. You know, no, no mask in the way. I said, hey, you know, actually, I didn't play this year. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, this, I'm, this is who I am. I'm not that guy. This is who I am. And it was a, it was a pretty funny, funny conversation of confused identity. But when it comes to God, this is the sort of thing that God has determined never to let happen. What if I told you that God has told us how we should think about him? What if I told you that God, with absolute clarity, has told us who he is? That's where we are right here in Exodus chapter 3. Verse 13 Moses asked a good question verse 13 then Moses said to God if I come to the people of Israel and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name what shall I say to them this is a good question Moses didn't think that saying the God of your fathers was enough and that's probably because it's been like 430 years since Israel has been in Egypt the fathers were a long time ago Moses wants to give these people a name they're going to ask me your name God what do I tell them what is your name and God's answer is an answer that's not really an answer He doesn't say, oh yeah, oh yeah, the name's Bob. Instead, look what he says in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, first... God is saying that His name is not like what we think. See, names are a way of comprehending someone, especially in the ancient world. A name was like a definition, and definitions help us understand something by referring to other concepts. For example, what is a box? Just try this out. What is a box? How would you explain that? Well, a, bo- a box. A box is a square. Okay, what's a square? A square is a shape. All right, what's a shape? Well, a shape is is how we classify things in space. Okay, space. Now let's talk about space. See, to define something, you have to break it down into more simpler parts until eventually you grasp it. But it doesn't work that way with God because God is who he is. He is irreducibly himself. That's what he's saying here. We don't start with categories and then fit God into them. And whatever categories we end up making, God is telling us that he exists outside of those categories. So what is your name, God? Moses wants to know. What's your name? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. There is no other way to define me other than in terms of myself. I am. I am is sending you. Verse 15. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the name that God tells Moses in verse 15 gets translated in English as the Lord. Okay? In Hebrew, this is the word Yahweh, Yahweh. And it is an exclusive word. Okay, this is not borrowed from anywhere else, but it seems to be connected to the verb to be in Hebrew. It's the word haya. In fact, the word Yahweh is very close to the Hebrew verb, the Hebrew verb haya, in past, present, and future forms, all put together. So, if you take the Hebrew verbs, I was. I am and I will be. And if you overlay them, you get this word, Yahweh. Yahweh. That is God's name. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. My name is Yahweh. This is how God wants to be known. This is the name that he wants his people to know him by throughout all generations, which is why the name Yahweh shows up over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. Anytime you see the English word Lord in small caps, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. That is God's name and this is new. This is something new that's happening here. And it's hard for us to wrap our heads around this, okay? It's supposed to be hard for us to understand. But there are two things that might help us here, okay? Historical context and cultural context, okay? Turn over real fast to Exodus Exodus chapter six, like one page over. Exodus six, verse three. In Exodus six, verse three, God again is gonna declare his name, but notice what he says here, Exodus six, Verse 3, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, that's El Shaddai. But by my name Yahweh... I did not make myself known to them. Okay, so historically, going back to the book of Genesis, when it comes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God appeared to them as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. He was the most high. He was the most powerful God. But by his name, Yahweh, he did not make himself known, which means Yahweh is more than a name. It's not just a title, but Yahweh is a kind of identity. There is a qualitative revelation that is attached to the name Yahweh and up to now the world has never seen it. In the past, God revealed himself as El Shaddai, but now he will reveal himself as Yahweh and the content of that revelation is everything. The content of that revelation is the chief concern of the book of Exodus and the rest of the whole Bible. Yahweh wants us to know who he is he wants us to know that he is Yahweh and that means something and this is where cultural context will help us there were no atheists in the ancient world just polytheists right and a polytheist of course believed that there were many gods and each god was over their own domain. So you have like the sun and the moon, the stars, the rivers and so forth. And there were gods over each part and the whole idea is, is power and control. The different gods had power and control over their different domains. And if you wanted a good thing to happen in a certain domain, then you needed to win that God's favor by meeting its needs. For example, if you wanted clean water to drink, then you needed to win the favor of the river God, which means you would do some sacrifices, you would scratch his back, you would do something to bribe his blessing. That was ancient Egypt. Okay, that's Egypt. And Egypt, as the most prosperous nation in the world, assumed that they were very good at this. Imagine that world for a minute, okay? Imagine that world. You pick your God, and then you try to earn the favor of that God by giving him things. Imagine that world, black cloth, and God Almighty says, I am who I am. Yahweh is my name, and I'm going to make my name known to you. Watch this. All these so-called gods of the river and the sun and the seas, watch this. They have their little corner of creation. Well, I'm the creator of it all. Everything you see, I created it. Everything that exists, exists because I say so. I am the causer of all things. I am the keeper of all things. I am greater than that which can be imagined. You cannot get beyond me. I am the maker of anything other than myself, and I exist outside of what I have made, which means I don't need you. I don't need you. I am who I am. Yahweh is my name. Church, Yahweh is absolutely sovereign and free. He does what he wants. You cannot control him. You will not twist his arm. He is who he is. Which is why he can say later, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That only makes sense to us because of who he is. He is Yahweh. He's the creator of it all. He is absolutely sovereign over everything. He is sovereign and free. And if we will know his name, it is only because he has chosen to tell us. And if he saves, it must be by grace. Which is exactly what we see as we keep reading in the book of Exodus and the entire Bible. Yahweh, holy and sovereign and free, is Yahweh who saves by grace. You want to know who Yahweh is? Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the Holy One who saves by grace. And each week when we come to this table, Yahweh is making himself known to us again and again. This this table is actually a kind of burning bush except that we're not just invited here to come and know him but we are invited here to come and have fellowship with Yahweh by remembering What he has done. He is the Holy One who saves by grace through the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is Yahweh, is the revelation of Yahweh's holiness. And he is the revelation of Yahweh's grace. This table is a fire of welcome. Take off your sandals. Examine yourselves. But come. Come and eat. Come and drink in joy. We are not just saved from church. We are saved to. We are saved to Yahweh, the Holy One, who saves by grace in Jesus, who is Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation his body is the true bread let us serve you